0: Hello church, if you would open to First Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 7, and we will actually take two weeks on these seven verses. This is God's Word, starting in verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people The man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Father, again, we, we need you. We admit our need. We are not mere students. We are worshipers. We are disciples. We are children. And Lord, we have an enemy. We have our own struggles with our own flesh. Lord, we pray that You would make this Word bear fruit in our lives. We pray that we would be changed. Lord, You prayed the night of Your crucifixion to sanctify Your people by the truth, and that Your Word is truth. And so we pray, Lord, that You would do that right now for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, do you ever ask really big questions about our city, our nation, the nation's Uh, The world that we live in. Do you ever ask, what should the world be like? Uh, What type of world do I want to live in? What type of world do I want my children and grandchildren and future generations to live in? Uh, As many of you know, uh, Priscilla and I were in uh, Washington, D.C. this past week. And uh, as you should when you're in Washington, D.C., we went to the monuments and many of these historic locations And as you're visiting these monuments, you begin to realize uh, that there were actually uh, men who asked these type questions. What should a country be like? What type of world do I want for my family and for the other families in this country and nation for generations to come? Does anybody think like that anymore? Should we even think like that as Christians? Um, and I'll just say, I'm a believer in starting new endeavors. Uh, I, I love uh, when I hear of new ministries uh, starting and new businesses starting, uh, new churches and schools starting, and uh, people pouring their lives into things that will outlast them, that will carry on for future generations. Uh, that's why I planted this church. That's why uh, it's for Pensacola. It's for you. It's for your, hopefully, God willing, our children and grandchildren. Uh, that's why uh, I myself and uh, myself and other pastors are, are working on uh, starting and have been for the last year a Reformed Baptist Association of, of churches in this area to hopefully outlive all of our pastorates and, and, and carry on uh, good unity and fruitful labor in this area for many years to come. That's why I'm on the board of my children's school, uh, to to create and help create and sustain an institution that will serve many, many families and children for many years to come. Uh, This is why we have kids. This is why we have children. Uh, Not for our own personal uh, fulfillment, but for the sake of the nations, for the good of society, for the glory of God, to raise them and send them out. And it is very tempting, as you know, to just limit our thoughts to our job, our life, our family, and and, and be so limited in our scope. And we need to constantly come back and ask ourselves, what type of world has God called us to create? Not just for ourselves, but for future generations. And here's what I'm talking about. Genesis 1, the creation mandate. When God told the first man and woman to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and have dominion, to have dominion. He said it to the, to the woman and to the man in Genesis 1, that they both were to have dominion to cultivate the earth and to replicate and make image bearers of God. And I think structures and systems that would cause those image bearers to prosper uh, one of the things that I've noticed over the years in the, in the church, especially among Christians, is there's a word that uh, it slows us down in this endeavor. It shouldn't, but but it often does, and that's the word "exiles." That that word really trips people up for some reason. You know, we read in First Timothy or First uh, Peter and Second Peter, it, it talks about how we're exiles, we're pilgrims, passing through. This world is not our home. You know, we read in uh, Hebrews 11 that by faith, Abraham journeyed to another heavenly home and we're to be like Abraham because this world isn't our home. We're pilgrims passing through, sojourners, right? And many people believe that as they should and then go, well, does it even matter what I do here because this isn't my home? I'm headed to a heavenly home. So does it even really matter to spend my time and effort in life? Investing in earthly things. And a lot of Christians think this way. And that word exiles is is really important. But let me point us back to where the origins of this word exiles. Jeremiah 29.4 says this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to the exiles... "...whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease." But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And so I think it's clear and you could argue this from the Old Testament into the New that Christian, wel- that Christian exiles should care about the welfare of the city in which we live. That Christian exiles should care about uh, the evils that are happening in culture, like the increased secularization of the youth culture, and what that will mean for future generations, Christian exiles should care about political leaders who are creating structures and laws and systems that affect all of us and certainly generations to come. And again, I, I understand why we uh, we care about our our what's on our plate our kids, our job, our lives, as we should. But we've got to remember all the things outside of our home and our kids and our family and our life and our job are affected by the government, are affected by the culture. To ignore those things is not to understand that they actually do bleed into and affect our own and even ourselves And so here's what I want to lay before us today from this text. I want to give us an optimistic vision for Christian engagement with culture. An optimistic vision for Christian engagement with culture. And I'm getting it from this passage. We'll take it in three parts. What is our first responsibility toward culture? That's verses 1 and 2. What is the ideal culture we should desire to live in? Verses 2 through 3. And what is God's ultimate desire for culture? The culture and the world are all people. That's verses 3 through 6. And let me just say a few things before we get into those questions um, that I think are important to say on the front end because uh, in the last 20 years or so, culture and cultural engagement is a big hot topic. A lot of people are talking about this. And so let me just say, number one, this passage is not an, exi- an exhaustive treatment of this topic. More could be said about Christians and culture than this text says. Second, um, I believe that this text implies persecution, or else, why would we be told to pray for peace? So I think, even if you have an optimistic view toward engagement with culture, it's with a backdrop of pessimism, understanding Jesus said, you will be persecuted as you move into the world with the gospel, and as light, Third, I'm aware eschatology plays or in-time views play a a lot into how we think about engagement with culture. However, this passage I don't think should be affected at all with whatever your eschatological view is. It shouldn't affect how we understand this passage before us. And then lastly, I think this text uh, shines some light on a buzzword that's used often in these discussions called contextualizing. Uh, Many of us have heard from the experts in missiology or cultural engagement that we should contextualize as we enter into culture. And I think this passage calls a lot of that into question. Uh, I, I I like to say, don't contextualize, just be apostolic. Because the apostles contextualized. And we should do it like they did it, and not like what often happens in the name of contextualizing, uh, which is, it basically just becomes pragmatism, do whatever works, as long as you're just saying the name Jesus and sprinkling some scripture on it. Um, you know, here, here's a way that this is taught often. I've heard this many, many times. I'm sure you have as well. People will say the methods change, but the message never changes. The methods change, but the message never changes. Now, if what they mean by that is, you know, the apostles didn't preach with a microphone, I agree, right? The methods may change. We adapt to, you know, technological advances and things. But that's not what people mean by the message never changes and the methods change. That's not what they mean. Uh, They mean as long as we preach Jesus, which is usually a very generic version of Jesus, that we can essentially do whatever works toward that end. Um, And we've seen, and I don't have to list off right now, all the circus acts of craziness that happen under this type of methodology, where basically, here's here's what's basically happening. The church ends up giving culture culture. The church ends up giving the world the world, which is what they want anyway. But all of that is happening often under the banner of contextualizing. And look, I'm not just talking about megachurches. I listened to two conservative reformed guys, big academic credentials the other day, who were saying the old ways won't work anymore. And they were talking about the traditional methods, which I think is what Paul is teaching Timothy here. They were saying that these are uh, not compelling enough to combat the hostile secularism of our day. And, um, And so think about our context here. We have Paul, a seasoned missionary and minister, on his third missionary journey, which would be his last one. He's an old man. And he's talking to a young man, Timothy, about how to lead the church and advance the gospel. And where is Timothy located? He's in a very progressive area. He's in Ephesus, a very progressive metropolitan type city. And he is teaching Timothy, I believe, what many experts in our day call an ineffective traditional methodology. So keep that in mind. Um, You know, sometimes people will complain to pastors, why aren't we lobbying for this issue? Or why aren't we getting involved in this particular cause? Or uh, these local elections are so important. Can you be more vocal about that? And people ask their pastors these things. And when these type questions get asked to me, I always want to know, what do you mean by the church should be more involved? Because I may or may not agree with you on that. Do we mean by the church, the institution? Or do we mean by the church, the individual members of the body of Christ? I remember as a young pastor, I didn't have that distinction, and I felt absolutely overwhelmed until a few years in, uh, I came across this distinction, and I think it's a biblical one. There's the institution of the church, and there's the individual members of the body that is the church. And I think that those things are very different. So the individual bodies or, or body parts of the church are to be equipped to, be, uh, to run for political office, to lobby Congress, to fight injustice in the public square, to start new ministries and nonprofits, orphanages, hospitals, etc., etc., etc. Equipped by the institution of the church to go out as the church, into culture, into society, and affect all these things. But the institution of the church itself has a more limited and powerful function. And it's threefold. It's the preaching of the word of God. It's intercessory prayer. And it's sacrificial love, or what he calls in this passage, godly lives of dignity. That's our contribution to society as the church institution. The preaching of the Word of God, prayer, and godly lives, or what we could call neighbor love. That's our contribution to society. I I see all of that in this passage. I want to just walk through three questions to draw this out. Here's the first question. What is our primary responsibility toward culture? And I don't think it should surprise us that Paul begins this section on the church's duty toward culture saying, first of all, pray. Pray. Prayer isn't an afterthought for Paul. It is essential. It's never a last resort. It's never a, when everything else fails, we should probably probably start praying about this. He says in verse 1, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. He, he's, what is he doing? He's saying, do what me and the other apostles are doing. I'm not telling you to do something that we're not doing. Remember Acts 6? We need some people to take care of the tables, take care of these ministries in the church, so we can devote ourselves to the ministry of the Word and prayer. And now he's expecting the church to give themselves also to prayer. He says, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions and thanksgivings be made. Why urge? I've, I've, I've said this many, many times, but I believe that prayer is for the Christian natural, it's like breathing. To talk to God. He's your father. Every Christian prays. But that doesn't mean every Christian is good at praying. Or as devoted to prayer as we should be. And therefore we need urges. We need exhortations. You need, I need people to say, Pray. Pray with thanksgiving. Give yourself to this work that the Lord has called you to. It's very, very needed. You know, many of us, uh, many of you know that this church was really born out of corporate prayer meetings. That's, that's why the Cross Church exists today, is because of believers gathering together and praying together. Um, we would spend in the early years of the church on Sunday night, two and three hours together in prayer uh, in, our, in our living room. And it was, it was a glorious time and it wasn't very impressive. It doesn't sound as impressive as it. As it actually was. People were falling asleep and, you know, it was, <laughs> but it was amazing. And, um, and now our corporate prayer time is in that room in that chapel over there at 930. And 45 minutes straight, we pray. And uh, we prayed today. And there wasn't, I don't, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, who were in there. I don't think there was 10 seconds of silence that someone wasn't praying And others weren't joining in for 45 minutes. I want to urge you to avail yourself of that. If you can, okay? If you can, be there. Set your alarm an hour early and commit to that. Maybe some of you are serving in other capacities, even on Sunday morning, and you feel compelled to join that. And you might ask someone to take over whatever responsibility you have on Sunday morning so you can join prayer, and then someone fills your gap. But I want to really encourage us to pray, to bring supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgivings together before the Lord. By the way, the, the word urging here, I think this is the difference between teaching and preaching. Um, sometimes we need to be taught something. Uh, other times we need to be urged. Urged. Uh, sometimes we need a lecture on theology. Most of the time, we just need to be urged, exhorted, by a preacher usually, to do what we already know we should be doing. Giving ourselves to prayer. We need, we need both of these things. We need urging. Why? Because we often have not, because we ask not because this isn't some religious duty that we just do to check off a box we actually believe this is a means toward certain ends that without supplication prayer and intercession and thanksgiving many things in the world won't happen many things in the church won't happen many things in our lives won't happen except through the means of prayer supplications uh, for basic necessities. Prayers could be spontaneous prayers or written prayers. And let me say this, you know the brothers that come up here and pray for, uh, for the, that lead us in a time of missions prayer, I don't know if you've noticed, but over the last year or so, they've been writing those out. And that may bother some people because you think, oh, it's not really prayer, they're just writing it. Well, yeah, they wrote it, but then they're praying it. And then we're joining them praying it. There's no problem with a written prayer as long as you pray it. I mean, every morning I, I, I pray a written prayer. It's called the Lord's Prayer. It's written in the Bible, and I pray over that every day. There's no problem with a written prayer, as long as we're praying. And so he says prayers. Intercession is a, is a type of prayer that's not mainly for ourselves, but for others. Uh, that, that, that there are these missionaries that we send out. I mean, we've had people come to our church. The Kramers, is, who comes to mind right now, who said, we don't want your money. I mean, they bought plane tickets, flew to Pensacola to come to our church, only our church, and say, we just want the prayers of the cross church. We don't even want your money. I mean, ask Matt Grace, get on the phone to, or text him, email him, ask Matt, do you want our money or our prayers? He's going to say prayer. I mean, he's self-sufficient. That's not fair. Um, <laughs> but ask Cody. Cody. Ask Cody Matthews. He does need our money as well, but he will take our prayers. He knows money can only do so much on the mission field. I need the prayers of God's people, their intercessions. And then he says, Thanksgiving, that our prayers should be full of Thanksgiving. Philippians 4, 6. Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and supplication with Thanksgiving, present your request to God. And and every week, that's why we remind ourselves corporately, Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations. And so Paul's urging them not to just pray to feel good about a personal quiet time or some religious duty. He's saying pray because your prayers change culture and society and governmental structures. Ian Bounds used to say, prayer moves the hand that moves the world. And if we believed that, we would pray differently. And and one of the things that holds us up, and it shouldn't, but it does, is our Reformed theology. There are many Reformed churches that unintentionally become fatalistic. And just think, well, God's sovereign, therefore the culture is going to be what he wants the culture to be. And feel no urgency to pray. That's a wrong view of Reformed theology or of God's sovereignty. But it often happens. Unfortunately, many Calvinists are more Calvinist than Calvin. Especially when it regards preaching and prayer. Do you know how many missionaries were sent out of the church that Calvin led in Geneva? To Italy? To Brazil? I mean, they were all killed when they got there. It didn't do anything for the advance of the gospel, unfortunately. But they sent out tons of missionaries. And they prayed for those missionaries. And they held corporate prayer meetings. And who had a higher view of God's sovereignty than Calvin? It should never get in the way of our prayers. We should understand that God accomplishes His sovereign work in the world through prayer. you know something historically that the church has understood is that missions the church the advance of the gospel is very very affected by governments it's very affected by governments we should be thankful that we have the freedom to do this right now without your job getting taken from you massive taxation and penalization for you just joining this us at worship today we should be very thankful for the freedoms we have left in our country. And then we should pray for the current political leaders and those that will take power to continue to allow these freedoms. Because it, it isn't like this everywhere. And it hasn't been like this in every country. And it may not always be like this in America, but we should pray that we can continue to do this. It's not just something that we automatically will have forever. We, we should pray intentionally about these things. Romans 13 says that the government, these governing officials, are ministers of God to us. They're supposed to, and they're given power to, bring a common grace good on society to restrain evil, to promote good. You know, Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. God often does that through prayer. Many Christians fought the Roe vs. Wade decision on many different grounds. I don't want to devalue any of those. But I believe it came down because of prayer. Uh, Christians should continue to lobby against abortion, destructive gender ideologies that are bringing destruction upon many people. We should... We should do what we can to slow that and change that. But if those things come down and there's big cultural changes with how these things are viewed, I believe it will largely be because of prayers. John Episome, in his book, God and Caesar... Christian faith and political action said this, Not everyone can serve in Congress or lead troops into battle for his country. Not everyone can organize political campaigns or lobby for important issues. But there is one thing that every Christian can do for his country. Pray. Prayer is an effective strategy for societal, cultural, and judicial change. It is. That's what it says. Pray for all who are in high places so that you may live peaceful and quiet lives. Do you see the connection? It's literally what the text says. And, and and it requires faith. I get it. That's hard to pray. You're actually thinking that this little prayer that I'm praying right now may actually affect those huge things. That takes faith, but that's what Jesus taught us to do in Luke 18, the, 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 the teaching on the persistent prayer. It says at the very end of that prayer, it says, will the son of man when he returns find faith on the earth? Will we pray in faith for these things? There are Christians out there who I believe whose prayers have brought down wicked regimes, There are Christians whose persistent pleading with God have overthrown evil dictators. There are Christians who prayed down big tyrannical governments and then prayed up small, friendly governments to Christianity. Because they didn't limit their prayer to pray for their uncle's swollen toe, you know. (laughs) But big cultural issues. And you know we hear of evils in the world and 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 some, you know, immediately start typing or writing or and there's a place for that. But there's other people when they hear of the evils going on in the world, they go to their room and they shut their door and they pray to the Father who's in secret. And it, and Jesus says, "The Father who hears in secret will reward them." Don't ever under Estimate the power of one praying person over 10,000 angry social media posts. That one praying person may be doing and accomplishing more. You know, um, many of you are familiar with the Chinese communist regime over the recent decades. 1953. They forced out all the missionaries. They all had to be out by 1953. It started back in the 1940s. But it, it, it rose up uh, in the underground churches and, and among the Christians who were there, believers outside of China, prayer, which led to a massive growth in the church. And we've seen China become a, a strong Christian nation in, in many parts, at least the unregistered underground churches. But now, fast forward, even earlier this month, the Chinese government is now requiring in certain providences before coming to church, you have to have an app called uh, the Smart Religion app. And you have to record your name, address, date of birth, occupation, government ID number as you attend church. It's just the latest in the increasing pile of Chinese restrictions on believers And the surveillance in China is among some of the most oppressive and sophisticated in the world. It was actually reported earlier this year that being a Christian in China is the 16th most dangerous place to be a Christian. You know how many churches they've reportedly shut down since COVID just two years ago? Over 7,000. So when we, or when especially the Chinese people, pray for their own nation, should they just say, oh God, bless China? Or should they pray specifically for things? Should they be very, very specific in their prayers? Should we be very specific in our prayers? The old preacher, there's an old preacher who said, if you pray general prayers, expect general answers. But specific prayers receive specific answers. Guys, we don't want to be rebels to the state. Romans 13 clearly says, submit to the governing authorities. That's what we want to do. That's what we want to do. But when governments tyrannically overstep their God-given authority, we have no choice. I mean, COVID really did refine the thinking in a lot of people regarding this issue. Whether we want to admit that's true or not, it, it really did serve that purpose in the church. I mean, thankfully in Florida, we didn't have to break any laws to keep gathering in worship. Praise the Lord, we didn't have to do that. But if there's a COVID 2.0 and we're not allowed to come here on Sunday like this, we're coming here on Sunday like this. We don't want to have to break laws to do that, but Jesus Christ is Lord with a capital L, and if the little lords and little kings tell us not to obey our Lord, And our king will obey the Lord of lords and the king of kings. That's what godliness and dignity looks like when we're told to not obey God. What what happened to the apostles in Jerusalem in Acts 5? when, When the government strictly charged them not to preach anymore in Jesus' name, what did they say? We must obey God rather than man. Don't bring us to that point. We're praying it won't have to come to that, but if it comes to that, we're going to obey God rather than man. Paul's saying, don't don't let it come to that without pleading and praying so that you can live peaceful and quiet lives. And this leads to the second question What is the ideal culture we should desire to live in? Look back at verse 2. I think the ideal culture is one that allows us to live. Peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. Guys, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of words like radical to describe the Christian life. I, I don't like those words. I like words like peaceful and quiet, normal, <laughs> you know, like what it's saying here. And, and what happens sometimes is people will read, you know, say the book of Revelation and they'll see martyrs who are glorified for martyrdom and they'll think that's Christianity. And they'll just think they have to do the most radical things in order to be obedient and live a godly life. But what does it say here? You don't want to have to be martyred. You want to pray for circumstances in which that wouldn't have to happen. 1 Thessalonians, we could add to this, chapter 4, verse 11, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as, inst- as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So he's saying pray for those in high positions so that you can just live these normal lives without having to be persecuted for just doing basic Christian things. Um, when we were, uh, again, Purcell and I were in D.C. this week, and, uh, you know, we're going through these museums and we go into the one with all the original documents and, uh, and manuscripts, and so we're looking at the Declaration of Independence. And, and if you've been in there, the room, it kind of circles and you can look at these documents. So you start with the Declaration of Independence, take a few steps more and you're looking at the Constitution, and you take a few steps more and you're looking at the Bill of Rights, and... um, And then in the Constitution, in the uh, Declaration of Independence, you read that little phrase, and it's very faded on these original documents, but it says, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These are inalienable rights for all citizens. And if that's true, our founding fathers said it was, I don't want to argue with that today. But if that's true for all citizens, Paul is more concerned with the church that we be able to have Liberty, happiness, godly and dignified and peaceful lives. Look what happens when, this, when the church gets to experience peace from the government. So in Acts 9.31, listen to this. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. What does that mean? They just felt emotional peace? No, it means they weren't being killed or persecuted. They had peace and were being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And it multiplied. The church multiplied. So Jerusalem gets smashed with persecution. All the believers spread out of Jerusalem. They they go into uh, Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. And have peace. No government persecuting them there. And then what happens? They begin to grow. And they begin to multiply. They begin to be more healthy. Jeremiah 29 again says, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Pray that we may live peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. Think about Daniel in Babylon. Daniel and these others are sent into Babylon under a tyrannical dictator, Nebuchadnezzar. They sought to honor that man. They had a pure heart toward that man. They wanted to obey him, but they wanted to obey God more. And so what does Daniel do after an edict's put out that you can't pray? He opens his window. Maybe he just was hot. I don't. Maybe he was doing something more than that, but he opens his window and prays. And he gets thrown in the lion's den and God delivers him. And then Nebuchadnezzar sees it, and then says what? There is one God. It's the God of Israel. And when he declared in Babylon, this is the God that everyone should worship, there was blessing in Babylon because of that. I don't know how you could argue that that Babylon wasn't blessed because of that new edict that came from Daniel's stand against the government. And the point is this, when the government is friendly toward Christians, the whole society receives some measure of blessing. So we are called the light of the world. But when the culture goes, we don't want the light, we want darkness, and they put out the light, what happens to the culture who puts out the light? Well, they get darkness, and then darkness brings judgment. What happens to the salt of the earth? When the the culture says, we don't want salt. What is salt? Why does Jesus call us salt? Because it's a preservative. It preserves the people around it. It preserves the nation or the country or the city. When you get rid of the salt, there's no preservative. Remember the story of Sodom and, and, and Abraham's intercession for Sodom? God wants to destroy Sodom. And what does Abraham pray? If there's 50 righteous God, don't destroy it. And then God says, I won't destroy it if there's 50. And he goes, what about 40? Would you destroy it if there's 40 righteous? And God says, no. What about 30? What did he do? He appealed to the salt of the earth that was there. And said, as long as there's salt here, I won't destroy it. But if all the salt is gone, God's judgment falls. We want to pray for the blessing and prosperity of Christianity in a culture, because it's good for the culture, not just for us. And and if I could just remind us that Jesus is Lord of this country. And sometimes He demonstrates His supreme lordship by bringing judgment on a country. Which is what Romans 1 says is happening to America as we speak. But that's not that Jesus isn't Lord here. That's that he is. And he doesn't just bring salvation to a nation. He brings judgment to a nation because he is Lord of the nations. Now, look, I got to pause here because some of y'all are going to probably think I'm going somewhere I'm not going or, or the text is going. I'm not advocating for a type of cultural Christianity I'm not advocating for a type of nominalistic Christianity. I don't think the Bible ever advocates for that being good for the church or for the culture. In other words, Christianity isn't winning when we bring down socialistic or communist governments. That isn't the win for the church. The win for the church is when real change occurs in a culture that can only come through the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the regeneration of the hearts of the citizens, and the true worship of Christ by the members of that culture. Which leads to the third and final question. What is God's desire for the culture? And I'm going to come back to this next week and and, uh, we're going to meditate on this verse more, but Let's just look at verse 4 quickly. God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now again, I'm going to come back. We're going to look at that again next week. But let me just put this before us as the simplest way to understand this. What does verse 4 mean when it says God desires all people to be saved? What does the all mean? What does it not mean? Well, the all does not mean all people will be saved without exception. As in every single person in the whole world to ever live will be saved why does it not mean that well because there would be no hell there there the universalists would be right that God doesn't judge anyone to hell that there's no and then therefore there's no reason for Jesus to even come in the first place to save us from anything All right? that's it, that's not what it means that Jesus will save every single person that will ever live without exception in fact, we shouldn't, even the, the, uh, at a linguistic level, we shouldn't think that all people means all people in that way. Uh, for example, many times in the Gospels, you'll see the whole city went out to Jesus. The whole city? Really? There wasn't like a 90-year-old grandmother who couldn't get up and walk a mile out to the wilderness where Jesus was preaching? Does it literally mean the whole city? No, it doesn't mean the whole city. It just means most the city, a lot of people went out. It's a form of speech, right? So I believe what many of the commentators will say is that the all people means all kinds of people. And I say that because of the immediate context. It seems in Paul's mind that he's saying pray for all kinds of people, uh, for, for people in high positions, for government leaders, And then think again, if we interpreted this wrong, is he saying that the church should get together and make a list of every single person to ever live? I mean, we have eight billion people alive today. Should we, are we to pray for every single person? No, all kinds of people were to pray for. God desires all kinds of people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. We see additionally in verse seven, Paul calls himself a preacher and apostle to the Gentiles. That's in in Paul's mind. Well, what is he saying? Well, salvation used to be for the Jews in the Old Covenant. Now it's for all people. Now it's for the Gentile nations. Kostenberger in his commentary says, all people suggests the scope of God's saving activity is universal, including pagans as well as Jews. And so let me just end with this. Guys, um, When you grow up in a culture like many of us have, where easy believism is dominant, it's very, very tempting to get skeptical of people's professions of faith, of mass revivals. But look, that's faithlessness. There's no reason we should be skeptical about God bringing in a load of fish, he says, to be fishers of men, bringing in a load, a massive amount of people in. There's no reason we should be faithless that God couldn't save all kinds of people in our area. Thousands. In our country. Millions. We should pray like that. We should think like that. We should desire that. The devil has brought many counterfeit revivals. God has brought many genuine revivals even in our own nation and there's no reason we shouldn't hope that God would bring the message of this mediator Jesus Christ to all kinds of people to bring in a harvest of souls for the good of our culture and guys think of where this is all headed Revelation 7, John gets a vision. He sees what is to come. And here's what he describes. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb a massive multitude of people. May God God enlarge our hearts, church. May May we be overwhelmingly optimistic what His Gospel can do in our culture. Not hiding from every evil, but praying proactively that God would send out His Spirit to restrain evil, to promote good, to bring salvation. May the Lord help our hearts in these things. As we move to the table I just want to encourage us simply to think about that mediator between God and man. There is a holy God, and there are men and women who are sinners, and our only hope is that mediator between God and men. And so for those of you who have received that mediator by faith, who've been baptized in His name, come join us at the table. We'll take this together and rejoice in what Christ has done. Uh, If you'll be refraining on page two, uh, you can find some meaningful prayers there for this time. Let's pray and prepare to come to the table. Father, Lord of heaven and earth, the one who gives life and breath and every good thing to every creature, to every square inch of creation, to everyone who breathes and who is made in Your image. Lord, would You bring in to Your church and to Your Son all peoples, all nations, the rich and the poor, the educated and the uneducated, every nation and tribe and people. This is what You have done. And this is what You want to continue to do, Lord. Help us to fall in line with Your plan for the nations. To pray toward these ends. To speak and preach. And live toward these ends. we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.